Hello, welcome to the Dentist Profit Playbook, helping you grow your facial aesthetics business. Very honoured and humbled to have our guest today, Patrick Treacy. Don't know whether to call him doctor, professor, sir, lord. <laughs> there will come on to that mm-hmm. in the podcast. Um, no, thank you, Patrick, for agreeing to be a guest on the podcast. Not at all, Harry. We, you and I go back a long time, so it's nice to meet in this sort of circumstance. Yeah, it's normally at the bar, but we're talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So if anyone has been living in a cave for the last 20, 30 years and don't know who you are, if you just want to give a brief introduction to your background and what you're currently doing. Well, I've written a couple of books, I suppose, in my background, so there's nothing new um, in terms of what I have to say. Um, I started off originally doing molecular biology in Queen's Belfast. Okay. Things got a bit rough there in terms of during the 70s politically, uh, f- particularly for some students. So yeah. I, I sort of transferred to do medicine in the south of Ireland. But I had that sort of couple of years then lost because I wanted to do plastic surgery. So I went um, to different countries, actually. I was in um, South Africa for a while. I was in California. I was in um, Australia. And then my mom got ill around 1998 with pancreatic cancer. I diagnosed her, actually. It was just tougher. And I um, decided to come back to Ireland. And around that time, different things were starting, Harry. You know, Botox was just coming on route for the first time. IPL lasers, um, <clears throat> Shimon Eckhaus had invented, Patrick Bicker, uh, Bitter had run the first trials in California in Lujala in 1998. Yeah. And we had um, used, I suppose, Dermot fillers for the first time in 1998. They were invented, I suppose, in 1996, the hyaluronic ones that we have. Yeah, uh, and certainly I sort of trained in them just when I came back in 1998. And the interesting thing was in 1997, when I was running the Skin Cancer Center in Toowoomba, I also was interested in skin cancer. I went to the Mayo Clinic as a student in 1984, and I wrote one of the first central papers on malignant melanomas still out there, predicting that they were going to go through the roof, and it wasn't necessarily related to travel. There was some other unknown factor that was going to drive this, which I've still been proven right on. And But at the time when I was in Australia, we started, um, I started experimenting with Botox. Um, believe it or not, Anagin wouldn't necessarily let us use it, but Dicepool did, which gave me a sort of leverage in, in that sort of compartment. And one of my first um, uses was quite interesting. I had a patient who had come into our clinic, um, who followed by the police, believe it or not, uh, who wanted to arrest her for busting three traffic lights. Okay. And she was a patient who was a relative of another, sorry, um, who was a, a patient of one of my colleagues, and he'd been treating her for um, two things, really, but mostly obsessive-compulsive disorder, where she had a variation almost of trichomania, this sort of thing, where she had to um, do something to release this thing about every month, the same way as sort of pulling out hair. She had to go to the laundry to get her wedding dress cleaned. Oh. And um, what had happened was she had sweated that much, she destroyed her wedding photographs, 
and she was on um, with one of my colleagues, Neville, um, 60 milligrams of Prozac a day. So we, we happened to be talking about it in the, in the waiting room, or not in the waiting room, the doctor's sort of um, room. And um, I mentioned the fact that recently in um, Wales, experimentation had been done actually on dogs' feet. Yeah. originally to use Botox for hyperhidrosis and then on a man's face. So I wasn't aware of anybody who was even doing it then. Mm -hmm. So we tried it on her um, and it worked perfectly. And believe it or not, she lost her psychiatric disorder also and could come off her medicines, wow. which was phenomenal. And that was 1997. Now, the interesting thing, the reason that I mention it is because at that stage, I had shaved back the hair and just done the Botox in that area, mainly because it was expensive to get and it was difficult to get, particularly to give it to GPs. So they wouldn't release it at all. And um, <clears throat> so I, I learned three things. First thing is 2001, the FACE conference kicked off in London. Yeah, and yeah. Um, there was a paper there being presented by a professor colleague of ours who uh, introduced me to what was the minor test. And I had sort of said at the time, there's absolutely no reason to do this. And, and I sort of our banter back and forth became a bit hostile, actually, because I actually had said to him, how many cases have you treated? Which he hadn't treated that many, but I'd actually treated quite a lot at this stage because um, I suppose in the interim, four, three, four years had passed and I'd been doing it in Dublin. And during his paper, he expected people to use snap wrap for them to sit in the waiting room and do an iodine test. And, and and I found out that was totally unnecessary. The second thing which was interesting was I noticed that over the years, my sweating lasted much longer than other people's. You know what I mean? I was seeing clinics in London doing Palmer sweating for like three and 400 um, pounds at the time. It was only lasting three months. And my sweating was lasting only six and 10 months. And when I sort of queried what they were doing, they were diluting down the Botox because some paper had told them, oh, you can dilute it to spread it. But, you know, I mean... Uh, that was, in my mind, bad medicine and certainly not the way that I had sort of um, used it. I was very lucky in many ways, I suppose, Harry, to have been a pioneer in a lot of techniques that I used myself. So yeah, that yeah. my own way of doing them, including the use of hyaluronidase, which was credited being the, the doctor to use it for the first time in aesthetic medicine. But I mean, when a lot of doctors were using, uh, including some of the, the groups in Britain that were advocating people to use this at the rate of 75 and, you know, sort of 150. I was saying, you're totally out. You should be using 350 or 750. And for many years, I argued with one of my colleagues, you, you have this all factually wrong. And I actually went up on stage once in MCAS, people remember, in 2012, with five experts for using hyaluronidase. And because uh, I wasn't a moderator then, I wouldn't have been as well known as I am now. And I turned around and said, how many of you have actually used hyaluronidase? Because I know you, and I was a doctor from Spain, haven't, you told me. And I know you haven't, because you've only sat up on the stage. So believe it or not, not one of them had used hyaluronidase, but they were telling the whole audience how to use it, you know. So um, there's been a lot of things like that in my life also. I mean, I argued against the use of retrobulbar techniques for salvaging, you know, sort of blindness. There's no evidence that it's ever worked anywhere in the world, but people still push this. Yeah, Whereas yeah. now we're up to five cases of uh, total resolution with the superorbital method, the sort of, you know, that I lecture on now. But I mean, I was lecturing on that back 
12 years ago. Yeah. And I even advocated in 2007 the use of the cerebral technique for reversing blindness. People think that something like blindness is a new phenomenon. It's been around for 30, 40 years. It happened with fat injections. We really thought when hyaluronic acid came out that blindness would probably be quite easy to reverse, but it wasn't. But it wasn't for many reasons. It's the location, I suppose, of the neurovascular bundle at the back of the eye, and it's how you get into it, and they're covered by dura matter. And if you win retrobulbary, there's only a three millimeter gap that it can make its way into. And, you know, it seemed to me obvious, you know, that the superorbital foramen was the way to sort of connect the back of the eye. But then I've been using that all my life in terms of um, doing CO2 lasers. I mean, that's how we block, you know, the thing. I want to do a hair transplant as well. You know, so people were afraid that they would nick the nerve. But I mean, I do a, a regional block there three and four times some days, you know, and I've never had a problem ever, you know. But do you think these frustrations are because with your fighting against establishment, they've got peers with clinical studies or papers that they believe Harry, in? there's a couple of things. The first thing is studies don't mean that much. There's a lot of people out there with a lot more experience that aren't writing papers. You know, if you're looking at a Formula One team, you know the mechanics that can work on Formula One Ferraris. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're sort of putting their things down on paper. Second thing is, and and most people who go to conferences know the people who know what they're talking about, you know, not the people who want to get out there. The second thing is our industry just full of egos. Of people that suddenly become experts overnight doing nothing. They've never written a paper in their lives, you know, and they never even probably have. Um, I, I remember one group that was for, for treating, you know, sort of complications. Yeah. And there was five people on it. And I don't think three of them had even treated a patient. So how yeah. come, you know, if you're an expert in cardiology or neurosurgery you're respected because you know you've done hundreds of cases some of them may have gone wrong but that's how you become good at doing what you're doing you've written papers people look up to you and respect you but you know i mean i was at a conference recently in dublin actually run by um some friends of mine and we had um i was moderator and i had to pull you know sort of one or two of the speakers one was showing us how to inject hands but they said you know do not inject the fingers well, why not people sweat from their fingers, you know? Yeah. Another one said, oh, you can't use um, any of the lipo-dissolve um, uh, methods on an abdomen. Or well, why not? That's where we started doing it 20 or 30 years ago, you know? It just moved into the neck and because a certain company took it over and I think, in my mind, didn't show people how to do it properly. you got to do a neck inflection, not an extension, or you're going to end up in necrosis. So there's a lot of... Um, poor information out there and you know um it's been i suppose our, our credibility has been eroded as well by a lot of um poor legislation in the united kingdom particularly and that's spilling over into ireland you know and we're being faced on a daily basis with people doing things they shouldn't really be doing them yeah and also, I think the role of social media, I'm sure you, as a practicing clinician, see patients come in and say, oh, I see this technique by this person who's an influence on social media. I go, their technique is completely wrong, it's dangerous, etc. I know. I'm not sure also if doctors should be putting pictures of patients out there all the time and, oh, what a good boy am I. I think that loses our respect with our hospital colleagues. You yeah. know what I mean? A person is used to doing 
appendixes or neurosurgeons, they don't put their things up online. It cheapens us. It makes us almost look like the beauticians that sort of a lot of people turn around and disagree with. But when I look at Instagram and I look at doctors belittling themselves in some ways, you know, embarrassingly, you know, sort of posting about what they're doing to patients and that. I mean, that's what they're supposed to be doing. That's why patients go to you, you know. But I mean, um, it seems to attract an awful lot of people as well who you know, wouldn't really fit into medicine. Yeah. An awful lot of people with no specialist qualifications, not even in general practice, and I'm not belittling general practice. You know, it's a wonderful aspect of medicine. But what I mean is you spend four years becoming a GP. You have to do specialist training. You do your GP regio. You have to do your medicine SHO. You have to do your ups and gani. You do your psychiatry. There's a path there. But these people just go straight into it with a basic medical degree, you know, that certainly wouldn't allow them to probably even get a job working in the army or in the prison service, you know. Um, thank you for that. Words of wisdom, as usual. Uh, Going to take a step back. Um, Michael Jackson. So how did you meet him? How did you get involved with him? With Michael? Um, I suppose there was a couple of things. Um, we shared some common interests. And he had read some of my articles on HIV in Africa. And yeah. se secondly, um, he wanted to get some dermal filler out of his face, but um, he um, had nobody in the United States that was able to do it because we were probably five to six years ahead of the United States at that uh, stage. Um, we'd been using hyaluronic dermal fillers in Europe since 1996. I certainly had since 1998. And um, in the States, it came in 2005, 2007, that sort of period. So we had a lot of experience not only with using it, but removing it. And um, when Michael, I suppose, came to me originally, um, there was a certain thrust built up between us. You know, I mean, I didn't want to necessarily take photographs of him, and he knew that he could you know, come to the clinic. And he opened up about a lot of other things. And one of the first things he did was he took down a book okay. and he um, showed me a child with um, pretty bad vitiligo in Africa. And he said to me, Patrick, nobody knows the pain of that child. And I turned around and said, Michael, there's no pain from vitiligo that I'm aware. And he says, oh, yes, there is. Um, there's a mental pain because here. And he pulled up his... Um, pants to show me that sort of he was quite black and white himself and his whole abdomen everywhere including you know so he trusted us then to I suppose depigment his face his hands and his uh, ankles but that's all he did but the rest of them was uh, I suppose covered in vitiligo as well and then as he trusted us more he took off his wig and showed me the sort of bad scars he had, you know, sort of from the Pepsi Cola where he burnt his head. Yeah. And then um, some doctors had tried to bring his skin together by putting in some catheters to lift it, and it had ended up um, being unsuccessful. Um, you know, the way they sort of thought they would get a skin flap if they sort of moved it and stretched the skin, it didn't work out right. So Michael had a thing there, and then we were wondering whether we could sort of implant him. So... We started to end up as friends, and my, he, Michael then came to us for years, you know, sort of with his different problems. And he lived in Ireland then for a period as well, you know. So Ireland was a bit of a, a refuge for him. But 
Uh, Michael was um, quite intelligent in a way, you know, when he talked about um, some things, maybe just a butterfly, he'd give you the Latin name of it, you know, and I liked it as well because I play a bit of the guitar myself and sort of um, have been known to drink a glass of wine or whatever. And, um, you know, when we hung out in his house, you know, sort of um, he... Um, which was quite laid back, you know. I mean, he was very loving with his kids, you know. They kissed each other to bed at night time. I once brought a blanket up to bed up the stairs, and um, uh, blanket had big long hair then, and yeah. he must have been less than two for me to carry him up the stairs. And I turned around, I thought it was actually uh, his daughter, and I turned around and said, She's a beautiful looking child, isn't she? And he turned around and said, Patrick, that is my son, not my daughter, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it must be very hard in this position to trust people because um, he would have loads of people take advantage of him. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, Which is his song, They Don't Care About Us. If you listen to the words, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, mentioned, um, obviously, you do a lot of traveling. Um, you've got a couple of clinics. You teach. You write books. How do you find balance and how do you relax? Um, it certainly is becoming a little more difficult to um, find time to relax because um, uh, the problem is even if you take on other doctors, people want to come to you. Yeah. I've been in court for the last two days and i seen, I can't remember, something like 49 people. Oh. You know what I mean? And I mean, they weren't straightforward. I mean, most of them were dermatology. Five of them were skin cancers. Two of them were, three of them were sebaceous cysts. Yeah. You know, and scalp, which take up a bit of time. There was a lot of aesthetics there as well. Aesthetics is very easy. Let's be honest about it. You know yeah. what I mean? It doesn't take a genius to do it. And I mean, I can do, you know, sort of um, four Botoxes, six Botoxes, maybe four Botoxes in, in 30 minutes. You know what I mean? So, you you know, six maybe in an hour and maybe eight. So as a consequence, you know, um, it it provides the money to keep the show on the road. You know what I mean? And it's a bit like getting your haircut. People come to you because they trust you and particularly with dermal fillers. And I have a different way of doing dermal fillers than other people. One famous company that makes a product that we all know, train everybody the same way to make everybody look the same, you know? Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I, I would never do that to a patient. You know, you find out what they want, you ask them that, then you work out in your own head, you know, what you need to do. And I think there's some people, I think particularly left-handed people, who um, are artistic, who are, can draw, who are sculptors, and you don't have to be a plastic surgeon. Everybody could do that, including the beauticians whom we tend to knock from time to time. And so you read that in your head. When we talk about the Fabian Golden Ratio, all you're doing is correcting that in your head. You see a symmetry and you correct it. The temple's down here, you correct it. The jaw's crooked, so you sort of put a bit in the chin here. And they look much better for the simple reason you've restored their symmetry by the Fabian series in your own head. Not that you give exactly the same amount on either side to the temple and 
German fillers by numbers, you know, I mean, that drives me the methods, you know. Yeah, I was teaching yesterday one-to-one and she was talking about pie ratios, calipers, painting by numbers. I go, forget that. You're just, you need to learn the skill, how to assess. And as I, actually I said to her, put in your head, what do you need to do for that? Particular- well, it reminds me, and I'm not knocking Ritsu DeMilo here. I mean, he's a very talented doctor and we, and, and we all respect him. But when he does his, you know, C1, K1s and all this here, I think all that's happening is that it's almost like, somebody buying a guitar and learning a chord book. You know what I mean? But Eric Clapton or, you know, sort of George Harrison or whoever would have taken the guitar, worked out their own chords, worked out their own melodies, and they sort of are more, you know, an innovative band that are on the road, a bit like the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin, whereas the other people probably will always be boy bands. You know what I mean? They're sort of, you know, they're processed to show them how to do, and that's fine. So it's a bit like bringing the bottom up to a certain level and then some people are at that level before the start and they go to a higher level you yeah. know so i mean that's my impression of it and that's not meant to offend anybody i think that's the reality of it and i definitely agree on the same page and talking about education um i met you at like me you like to learn improve yourself met you at the pendulum summit a couple of years ago at dublin do yeah. you go to a lot of business personal development conferences well, believe it or not, I've been invited to one just and um, it's, it's, it's on a few days time. So I still have to do my thing for it. Oh, it's so funny. When you reminded me this morning, Patrick, because this Zoom call, I said, shit, there's something else I want to do. But I realized that sort of, yes, I, I have one of those to do on Wednesday and I still have done nothing for it. But look, it's, you know what I mean? We can ad lib if required, you know. And that because you're very um, giving and come from the heart. So do you find it hard to say no to um, lectures, writing, or are you quite firm? I think really, as John Kern would say, we've got to start putting velvet ropes around ourselves. Yeah. Because not only do you find it hard to say no to people like that, sometimes you find it hard to say no to some patients. Yeah. And I mean... It's the same patients that probably drag us down, that sort of, you know, um, complain about other doctors, take up, you know, sort of your whole time in consultation. They're never really satisfied. And the thing is that we've no reason outside our ability and want as doctors to 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 help humanity, whereas we should really be turning around saying, sorry, you know, that's... Um, Harry down the road will sort that for you, you know what I mean? He's very good at doing this, you know, or Jim up on the hill, you know. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think it's in our training to find it hard to say no, you know, because. And talking about that, you get patients that list every single new procedure that's hot on the market, and half of them I've never heard of myself, and that's alarm bells ringing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Um, Especially with um, skin booster, they'll there's so many skin boosters around. They list all twenty and think they've all had different. They've had all twenty different types of skin boosters, and they want you to tell you which one's the best. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I've stood back quite a while now and sort of said, you know, I'm not the aesthetic medicine police, you know, but. Um, we get a lot of, I suppose, complications coming to us. And it's a difficult situation because I ran, you know, one or two ERs in Dublin 
And you're going to have patients coming into you that are rapists, that sort of, you know, um, drove over people in cars, that sort of um, hit somebody over the head and left them with a brain injury for life. And you've got to treat those people as well. And it's a bit when, you know, sort of the beautician turns up with her compromised patient and with it, her own hyaluronidase that she got from Spain for doing cellulite or something. It's very hard, you know, to sort of turn around and say, you should not be doing this, particularly in front of a patient. So I've tended to sort of keep quiet because if you start drawing rules, you know, then people won't come to you or trust you, you know, it's a bit like, you know, a little bit like a yore, really. Yeah, perfect. Um, the future, what do you see? Two parts of this question. The future for you, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years and in the future for the industry? Um, I, I'm going to start uh, unwinding myself out of the sort of industry. There's okay. no doubt about that. Um, I um, have always been a traveler. I've traveled the world from a very early age, and I'm just actually in the middle of writing a book on travel at the moment, but I don't want to pitch it for about another six or nine months. And um, I have been very lucky with my uh, career to sort of go where I wanted to go. Yes. So in the last few weeks, I've been in Iraq, I've been in northern Pakistan, I've been in Canada. And don't forget, when I was in Iraq originally, I was a prisoner of Saddam Hussein. So sort of going back there um, was brave for me because particularly no Western doctors have been back there yet. And it was wonderful because I was trained on, uh, you know, I was treated almost like a visiting hero uh, with my own security that I didn't need in that. And downtown Baghdad was very laid back. There was no security in it anywhere. Certainly when I was up in Lahore outside Imran Khan's house, there was a lot, a lot more security up there than there was in, <laughs> um, in, in, in Baghdad. And um, I, I must say I really enjoy traveling, particularly the Punjab is uh, a wonderful place to go. And I'd, I'd like to get further up into Kashmir and um, even, I suppose, um, get as far as Peshawar. And, you know, even into Afghanistan would be wonderful again after all these years. So um, that's, I suppose, the first thing that I've never really put myself out there in terms of aesthetic medicine, but I've almost put myself out there more in terms of um bringing it to place. I get invited all the time to the United States, particularly to Las Vegas and to New York. But, you know, to be honest, Harry, I've been in Las Vegas five times. And if I go there once more, there's <laughs> nothing really interesting intellectually for me to see. So I've used these times more to sort of go to Armenia, to Georgia, to Azerbaijan, you know, to go to places you wouldn't normally get a chance to see. Uh, I'm going to sort of break the rules and go into Iran. I've been invited there quite a lot recently. And also I'd like to get up into Uzbekistan, you know, for Samarkand, because all these wonderful places, you know, that um, we just see remnants of now. You know, sort of you go to Iran, you've got Shiraz, you've got Petropolis, you've got Tehran, you've got Tibrits, you've got just wonderful places of old. And we tend to forget that Islamic medicine was way ahead of us right until about the 1700s or 1800s. You know what I mean? If you look at Al-Sid, if you look at Cordoba, Granada, the south of Spain, in those battles with Ferdinand and Isabella, 
the Islamic doctors were using plaster of Paris. They were doing surgery in the battlefield. They were able to remove gallbladders, cataracts. And most of the Western sort of doctors, the France, were doing chaffination, bloodletting, nonsense. You know what I mean? Religion has held back both of our cultures, both Islamic and and, and, and certainly Christian, uh, mainly, you know, sort of through the abuse of their powers during times of pestilence or pandemics, assuming that, you know, if you go to Allah or God, you'll get into heaven um, and he'll not let you die of this disease. So I've written a book recently on pandemics where I go into this in quite a lot of depth. And when you look at, we'll say, the way the Catholic Church particularly held back science and still do to a large extent through stem cells and all the rest, the Byzantines and the Arabs held it for us, particularly in Constantinople. And we had all the dark ages in Europe until the fall of Constantinople, about 1450 to 1480. In that period, we had this great resurgence in the West of the call, the Renaissance. You had Michelangelo, you had Galileo, you had Leonardo da Vinci. But all these people didn't, didn't come out of nowhere. It was all the suppressed knowledge that was in Constantinople that then suddenly came back to the Western Roman Empire or what was left of it. And I mean, when you look through history, and particularly, you know, when I talk about places like Petropolis or Shiraz, I was in sort of uh, Azerbaijan recently. And when you see, you know, um, particularly the origins of Zoroastrianism, they give rise to the Judeo-Christian beliefs, they give rise to this Islamic and Christian beliefs in, in a later phase. And those people, what they had then, you know, sort of, and even in terms of aesthetics, what they had, you know, it's um, in one of the books I've written also, I, I've really looked at who has the territory for aesthetics. Is it really the beauticians or is it really the, the doctors and dentists? Because they had it for many years until King George turned around in 1700 and said, okay, you guys can't have it anymore. You're not going to have barbers, you know, sort of cutting out gallbladders. We're yeah. going to have medical schools and all the rest. And so those medical schools in Edinburgh and Dublin, long before there was in London, believe it or not, we had Royal Colleges. London was late to the, to the gig. And it was only in that sort of period that sort of um, we gained this uh, possession of, no, I'm not talking about health. We all said that. I mean, things like aesthetics or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then the future of the industry, where do you see that going? This is a wonderful industry and has the potential to go um, everywhere that technology brings us. We've spent, I suppose, the last 10 to 20 years running through energy-based devices through all parts of the spectrum all the way up. So now the natural, I suppose, um, next level is to go molecular, biological, and particularly as medicine does this uh, with cancer, it'll happen with us as well. We use regeneration. See, people forget two things, Harry. The first thing is that really we're just a microcosm of the world around us. So in other words, when you look at the way war is fought against each other, against humans, in the Battle of Shiloh, what do we do? You know, we use swords. We cut people's arms off. What do we do in medicine to cut out cancers? We just cut it out, you know, and then along came the First World War. And what do we do? Oh, the Germans up the ante by using gas, you know, sort of they use chemical warfare. Then the British did the same. And then suddenly Paul Schilling has chemotherapy as the next way of killing cancer. 
Then the Second World War comes along, and what do we have? We have nuclear bombs. And in 1947, we're using DXRT radiation for the first time against cancers. You know, so then in the 1970s, 1980s, we had um, particularly, you know, people using um, biological warfare. Ricin was used at the same time for grass versus heart disease and leukemia. But we had people like Saddam Hussein turning around and sort of doing things like mustard gas, exactly the same things in terms of biological warfare. Then when the Iraq war kicked off, we had a thing called profiling, which means that a shepherd could walk down the road by a bomb and wouldn't blow up. But then, you know, sort of eyes on the bomb, an American soldier would come the zone on his helmet and on his glasses, and the thing would blow up in front of him. And we use the same thing in cancer. We turned around and had, you know, profiling against certain proteins on leukemic cells, you know, sort of where some things would pass, but the, the other ones would get targeted through T-cell lymphocytes and all the rest. So, I mean, one is just a reflection on the other. And as technology improves and gets better, in the big world, as a consequence of space race, cold wars, Ukrainian war, it'll all filter back into us, you know. Perfect, perfect. Um, you mentioned a couple of books. Um, I know you've written a lot of books and you've got a couple of them. Yes. If you want to one came out yesterday, yeah. Well, half the press. So if you want to tell our audience about one, the books that have been published and where we can get access to them. Well, most of the books, or all of the books, can be got either on Amazon are on um, the publishers, Austin Macaulay. Um, Marenza Press has done one of the complication ones, and that's a bit more difficult to get to, to get it through Italy. So, I mean, the books have broken down into different things. Number one, I have a memoir that I updated. The original memoir, 2012, was written during the Irish Recession, and that's called Behind the Mask. And then the updated version was The Needle and the Damage Done. And that's a double meaning, you know, sort of because... I once got a, a HIV needle stab that changed my life, but I, lucky I didn't see her convert because I cut a big lump out of my leg with a colleague and it never affected me. And then the needle and the damage done also because I'd come up with hyaluronidase in terms of uh, reversing vascular occlusions. So so behind, behind the mask, of course, was behind the surgical mask. And that was one of Michael Jackson's songs. And the Needle and the Damage Done, of course, is one of Neil Young's songs. So that's those two out of the way. Then I, in terms of complications, I wrote a book where I took 20 of the top people in the world in their field. And I edited a book where they all spoke about the complications in their field. Then I wrote one myself on a set of complications. It's about 500 pages long. And um, that really became a bestseller, which is wonderful because you could almost open a clinic because I ran into an awful lot of my research as well and how to treat anything and everything. So it was a set of complications and other interesting cases. And then in terms of medicine, I wrote a book on the evolution of aesthetic medicine, where it all came from in the last 50 years. The book that came out yesterday is a wonderful book. It's sort of um, on the history of medical Epinomes. So in other words, when we talk about Charcot-Marie tooth disease, I don't talk about the disease, I talk about Charcot-Marie and tooth. If I talk about collus fracture, you know, I talk about collus. I mean, the guy, when he got his medical degree in Edinburgh, to celebrate, he walked all the way to London, you know. So it's all those things. And so many wonderful Jewish doctors that were held in concentration camps. So many wonderful British doctors that discovered, you know, sort of things in during in the colonies, I mean, how malaria, we'd say, dovinitis was discovered, leishmaniasis, 
all those, I suppose, particular illnesses that we were in the interface of using, I suppose, um, technology as it existed, brains as it existed to deal with the problems that confronted, be it in the Panama Canal or be it in far-flung Africa. And um, so that, that's a nice book. And I have two coming down the line. One is How Pandemics Change Society, often for the better, not necessarily for the worse. And another one is on travel called Destinations. So, I mean... Doesn't look like retiring soon. Eh? Doesn't look like you'd be retiring soon. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Because 30 years to go yet, Harry. Yeah, a um, couple of final questions. Um, what was the best advice you were given when you were starting out in your career? Um... Believe it or not, the best advice I was ever given, I never followed, which to my detriment, you know. Yeah. And, and that was, at the end of the day, uh, somebody who was retiring told me and says, Patrick, it's all about the money. And he <laughs> turned around to me and says, people are not give a damn about you a year after you're gone. Three years later, they'll never even have heard about you. And you're going to have to protect yourself in that. And I still don't charge enough. And my staff turn around to me every day and say, Patrick, you don't charge enough. You look this year. But the older you get, and the more you realize how small your pension pool is, particularly if you survived the Irish recession and you lost a lot of money on property, you turn around and say, God, I wish I'd have taken his advice now, you know? So, um, it's funny. As a doctor, it's very hard to do that. Yeah, definitely. No, definitely. No, no, thank you, Patrick. The time has gone flown by. Um, I've got a history lesson as well out of you. So um, that's been my nuggets of information. I'm sure the audience have picked up um, loads of information um, and tips. Obviously, we'll get some links um, for the books from Amazon and put them on the podcast. Oh, thank that. you for that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. I'll Actually, continue. one of the books has just come out on audio. Okay. Um, Patrick Berg, you know, the famous Irish actor who uh, did Mountains of the Moon, which was the discovery of the Nile, who did Sleeping with the Enemy with Julie Roberts, you yeah. know, who was on Coronation Street for, you know, or East Enders, maybe it was for quite a while. Um, he's narrated a book for me, and you can get it in Audible, The Needle and the Damage Done. So, I mean, that, um, that went up to number 15 in the charts. I see now it's back at about 150. But anyway, um, yeah. We just can push it back up. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, that'd be nice. Okay, no, thank you, Patrick, for your time. I know you're a very busy man. Um, thank you for your words of wisdom. And I look forward to seeing you some international conference very soon. Down the line. We'll meet down the line, yeah. Okay, we'll do that. <laughs>